The second promise regarding Palestine was the Sykes-Picot Agreement uh, of 1916. This was a secret agreement between Britain and France to uh, divide the Middle East after the victory into spheres of influence. But they couldn't agree about Palestine, so the provision was to place Palestine under a special international administration. This secret agreement was incompatible with the promise of Palestine to Hussein, the Sharif of Mecca. And the Sykes-Picot Agreement has remained a symbol of colonial disregard, colonial carve-up of the Middle East in disregard of the rights of the local people. And today it's become fashionable. It's become fashionable to talk about the unraveling of the Sykes-Picot system. ISIS blew up a border post between Iraq and Syria, and they had a poster which said, we have done away with Sykes-Picot. This was not entirely accurate. Um, Professor Rogan, in his magisterial book on the fall of the Ottomans, has written the last word on Sykes-Picot, and he describes it as a process rather than a firm um, agreement. The borders between Syria and um, the borders of Syria and Iraq were not drawn by Sykes and Pico, but at the San Remo uh, Conference of 1920. David Lloyd George became Prime Minister in December 1916, and he was anti French. And immediately when he came to power, Britain started backsliding on this secret agreement. In particular, Lloyd George coveted uh, Palestine for the British sphere of influence. In domestic politics, Lloyd George had some radical ideas, but in foreign policy, he was an old-fashioned British imperialist and a land grabber. The third promise was the Balfour Declaration of November 1917. <coughs> Under this declaration, one nation promised the land of a second nation to a third nation. <laughs> the, the letter of Lord Balfour was only 67 words long. Very few documents in history have had such far-reaching consequences, and first and foremost, the loss of Palestine to the Palestinians. Lloyd George, rather than Balfour, was the driving force behind the Balfour Declaration. As uh, Tom Segev has shown in his book, One Palestine Complete, <coughs> Lloyd George's support for Zionism was based on ignorance and prejudice. In aligning Britain with Zionism, he acted in the mistaken and anti-Semitic belief that the Jews were uniquely wielded unique international 
power, that they were a powerful force that made the wheels of history turn. In fact, the Jews were helpless with nothing to offer, and the Zionists were a tiny minority within this Jewish minority. Edwin Montague, the Secretary of State for India, was the only Jewish member of the cabinet, and he was opposed to the Balfour Declaration. He, he considered Zionism as a threat to Jews in Britain and anywhere else in the world, and he argued that the creation of a Jewish state would undermine the struggle for equal rights for Jews everywhere else. But he was overruled um, by the cabinet, and when the cabinet was discussing the Balfour Declaration, Dr. Chaim Weizmann was waiting in the antechamber. When the decision was taken, Sir Mark Sykes came out of the cabinet room and announced, Dr. Weizmann, it's a boy. <laughs> in 1917, the Arabs constituted 91% of the population. The Jews constituted... 9%, and the Jews owned only 2% of the land of Palestine. As Edward Said wrote in The Question of Palestine, this was a classic colonial document which took no account of the aspirations or the rights of the majority, and above all, the natural right of the Arab majority to national self-determination. Um, the strongest substantiation of Edward Said's claim comes from a memo written by Lord Balfour himself some years later. In this memo, Balfour wrote, In short, so far as Palestine is concerned, the powers have made no statement of fact which is not admittedly wrong and no declaration of policy which, at least in the letter, they have not always intended to violate, unquote. So there you have it. You, you couldn't make it up. Um, you couldn't have a clearer proof of British duplicity and deviousness. For the last century until the present, Sykes-Picot and the Balfour Declaration have been the main terms of reference for all Arab nationalists. Sykes-Picot is the symbol of colonial um, uh, disregard for the rights of the Arabs, and uh, the Balfour Declaration is the symbol of Western imposition of a foreign body in the heart of the Middle East. But as Professor Rogan pointed out in his magisterial book, the difference is that Sykes-Picot was not implemented, whereas the Balfour Declaration was implemented. Against, in the face of French opposition, the British insisted on incorporating the Balfour Declaration in the mandate of a Palestine granted to Britain by the League of Nations. So the Balfour Declaration ceased to be 
a vague declaration by Britain and it became a binding legal international instrument. In my humble opinion, the Balfour Declaration was a colossal strategic blunder, one of the worst mistakes in British foreign policy in the first half of the 20th century. And this is also the view of Elizabeth Monroe, a co-founder with Albert Hurani of the Middle East Centre and the author of the classic book Britain's Moment in the Middle East. In the interwar years, the Palestinians constantly demanded a democratically elected assembly and government. All these demands were refused by Whitehall. Whitehall was much more pro-Zionist than the British officials on the ground. And Isaiah Berlin once compared the British mandate in Palestine to a minor British public school. There was the headmaster, the high commissioner, who was firm and impartial and fair-minded. And there were the Arab boarders and the clever Jewish day boys. And the teachers preferred the, the sporty Arab boarders to the clever Jewish day boys who had the habit the irritating habit of writing letters to the influential relatives all over the world to complain about everything from the quality of the food to the quality of the teaching. <laughs> Incidentally, um, the first British High Commissioner to Palestine was not impartial. He was a Jew, Sir Herbert Samuel, and he used his five years as High Commissioner to do everything to promote the Zionist project and to hamper um, Arab na Palestinian nationalism and national institutions. Arab frustrations eventually erupted in a full-scale revolt in 1936, a revolt that lasted three years. Major General Bernard Montgomery, Monty, was... Uh, sent to Palestine to deal with the revolt. His aides tried to educate him about the complex background to this conflict, but he cut them short. He didn't want to know. He gave a straightforward uh, order, kill all the terrorists. And that's what they did. The British suppressed the Arab revolt with incredible brutality. They killed thousands of Arabs. They imprisoned tens of thousands. They destroyed large parts, parts of Arab villages. They um, administered very severe collective punishment. They banned political parties and they expelled Haj Amin al-Husseini, the leader of the uh, Palestinian national movement. They expelled him from the country. So British actions greatly weakened Arab society and left it utterly defenseless. Rashid Khalidi, in his chapter on the Palestinians, in the book that Eugene Rogan and I co-edited, 
on the war for Palestine, rewriting the history of 1948, Khalidi argues that Palestine was lost not in 1947-48, but in the late 1930s, and that British, Britain destroyed any military capability that the uh, Palestinians might have had. This is a very powerful and compelling argument. And this brings me to 1948, the first Arab-Israeli war and um, the birth of the State of Israel. There is a debate about the events of that year, a debate between the Zionist and pro-Zionist historians on the one hand and the revisionist uh, Israeli historians or new historians of whom I am one. And one of the bone one of the several bones of contention in this debate between old and new historians concerns Britain's role in the twilight of the British mandate over Palestine. The standard Zionist charge is that as Britain was leaving, it incited, armed, and encouraged its Arab allies to move in the day after the expiry of the mandate and to strangle the infant Jewish state at birth. We dispute this, and we haven't found any evidence to support this uh, Zionist charge. Uh, my contribution to the debate about 1948 took the form of a 1988 book called Collusion Across the Jordan, King Abdallah, the Zionist Movement, and the Partition of Palestine. And my main thesis was that in 1947, uh, Abdallah, the ruler of Hashemite ruler of Transjordan, and the Jewish agency reached a tacit agreement to divide up Palestine between themselves at the expense of the Palestinians. And a subsidiary thesis is that Britain knew and approved of this collusion between the Hashemites and the Zionists. Hostility to the Palestinians was a constant factor in British policy throughout this period. In British eyes, a Palestinian state, which had been mandated by the UN partition resolution, was synonymous with a Mufti state. The Mufti was a renegade who had thrown in his lot with Nazi Germany, and therefore the British didn't want a Palestinian state. The key to British policy during this period was greatest uh, Transjordan, to encourage their client, King Abdallah, to make a bid for the Arab part of Palestine. The main part was the West Bank. Abdallah didn't need much encouragement because he was a born land grabber, and that's what he did. So there is a case against Britain um, when the mandate over Palestine was approaching its inglorious end. But the case is not that it encouraged the Arabs to prevent the emergence of a Jewish state, but rather that it colluded with its client Abdallah to abort the birth of a Palestinian state. 
1948, the United States intervened for the first time significantly in this conflict. It intervened on the side of the Zionists, and the United States was the first country to recognize the state of Israel. On the 2nd of June, 1948, Sir John Troutbeck wrote a memo to Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevin. And in the memo, Troutbeck complained about the role of the Americans in supporting the Zionists. He held America responsible for the creation of, quote, a gangster state with an utterly unscrupulous set of leaders, unquote. During the Israeli operation, uh, operation in Gaza in January 2009, I wrote an article in The Guardian, um, and I began the article with this quote, and I said that I used to think that this judgment is too harsh, but Israel's vicious assault on the people of Gaza and America's complicity in this vicious assault reopened the question. As British power declined and American power was on the rise, the Zionists adjusted their foreign policy. It had always been a cardinal tenet of Zionist foreign policy to enlist the support of the preeminent Western power of the day. First it was Britain, and then it was America. And this tenet has served Israel really well until the present day. Let me now skip a few decades and turn to Tony Blair. Tony Blair is a Christian Zionist. He's, completely, he's a completely uncritical supporter of Israel. One symptom of that is that he is an honorary patron of the Jewish National Fund UK. The Jewish National Fund is a non-governmental organization which only caters for Jews and doesn't do anything for Arabs. And incidentally... Um, Um, Gordon Brown is also an um, honorary patron, and David Cameron used to be an honorary patron, but he has ceased to be. For Blair, the crunch came in 2003 because the neoconservatives around George W. Bush were determined to attack Iraq and to bring about regime change in Baghdad. And when I say the neocons, I include Tony Blair. In many ways, he was the worst of the bunch. Many of the American Jewish neocons were Jewish, and all of them were pro-Israeli. One of the reasons for the American attack on Iraq, and I can't say that it was a I, I won't say how important it was, but one of the considerations in the war on Iraq was to destroy the Iraqi military machine in order to remove a long-term th 
threat, a possible long-term threat to Israel's security. As you will remember, there was widespread opposition in this country, not least within the Labour Party, to going to war in Iraq. But Tony Blair managed to overcome this opposition. In his speech to the House of Commons on the 18th of March 2003, requesting authority to go to war, he said there are two issues in the Middle East today. One is Iraq and its weapons of mass destruction. The other is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is as important as the Iraqi problem, but disarming Iraq was the first order of business. It was more urgent, and he promised solemnly that if he was allowed to take Britain into the war on Iraq, after Iraqi weapons of mass destruction had been removed, he will turn purposefully to resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and this swayed many of the waverers in the House of Commons. So the decision was uh, taken, Iraq was invaded, and that war constitutes another colossal strategic blunder in Britain's foreign policy. Iraq has been a a catastrophe at every level. I feel strongly about it because Baghdad is my hometown, but that's by the by. Uh, The important point is that regime change in Baghdad brought no benefit to the Palestinians. The Quartet issued the roadmap in the lead-up to war, and the roadmap envisaged an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel by uh, the end of 2005. In fairness to Blair, I would say that he was the driving force behind the roadmap. It's he who impressed it on his ally, uh, uh, Bush. Bush got up, made a speech, and launched the roadmap, but then did nothing about it, and within three months, the roadmap was dead in the water because Bush allowed the Israelis to completely empty it of any, any political content to destroy it. What Blair did not understand is that this America's special relationship with Israel will always trump its relationship with Britain. And whenever Bush had to choose between uh, Blair and Ariel Sharon, he always chose Ariel Sharon. So Blair sacrificed everything on the altar of the special relationship, and he got nothing in return, and the Palestinians certainly did not get anything in return. Uh, In 2007, Blair stepped down as prime minister, and the following day, he was appointed as quartet envoy to Israel-Palestine. Blair was an American appointee. In American eyes, his blatant partisanship on behalf of Israel was evidently, evidently regarded as a qualification for this job. Uh, I remember Blair, whenever he made a speech as envoy, 
he always sounded to me like an Israeli official because he always banged on about Israeli security and I never heard him mention once Palestinian rights. So the choice of Blair as envoy for the quartet only confirmed me in my view that the quartet is nothing but a clever American trick to waste time. I don't have time to go into Blair's detailed record as envoy, but in 2010 I wrote an article in The Guardian under the heading Gaza's Great uh, Betrayer, that was Blair, and there I have the charge sheet about his performance while he was envoy. But there is one thing that I would like to point out about this period, and that is that Blair was handsomely rewarded for his blind support for Israel. He was awarded the Dan David Prize, which is worth a million dollars, and the citation described him as one of the outstanding statesmen of our era and praised him for moral courage and leadership. I may be cynical, but it seems to me that this was Blair's reward for his complicity in Israel's continuing crimes against the Palestinian people. To conclude, Britain and Palestine from Balfour to Blair and beyond is a sad story of double standards, broken promises, and betrayals. The victims of this sad saga are the Palestinians, and it is for this reason that, for what it is worth, it is the Palestinians who have all my sympathy and support. Thank you. The phrase, uh, follow that, uh, comes to mind, I have to say. Uh, it's a, a huge pleasure and honor to be, to be here and to be sharing uh, this seminar with uh, Avi Schleim. While we're talking about magisterial works, it was obviously his book on the, uh, the Iron Wall, which I turned to when I heard that I was going to be posted to, uh, to Jerusalem as Consul General. And as uh, I'm sure you're aware, we and a number of other countries had consulates general in Jerusalem from before the time of the foundation of the State of Israel. We've maintained them because uh, we regard that as part of the status quo, part of uh, the international view that the final status of Jerusalem has not yet uh, been agreed. Um, but essentially, we, the Americans and the other nations with consulates general, use them uh, as our representations to the, to the Palestinians, essentially the nearest thing we have to an embassy to the Palestinians, although it was perhaps uh, evidence of the complexities that the actual wording on my appointment says that I am to be working on those parts known as East and West Jerusalem, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. I can't say uh, that the issue of uh, Balfour came up a great deal uh, overtly during my time, but obviously Balfour and all that Avi has talked about was very much 
the elephant in the room and has been for any British diplomat uh, working uh, in Palestine. Uh, when I got the job, I was thinking back to the first time I went to Jerusalem and the West Bank and to Israel, which uh, was way back in, in the 70s after uh, I'd been studying Arabic in what was then the Foreign Office Language School in, in Lebanon. And ironically, uh, we found ourselves going to uh, Israel very much because of the lobbying of the Israeli government. Uh, and the Israelis were convinced that our heads were being filled with all kinds of uh, calumnies about the state of Israel by our Palestinian and Lebanese teachers, and they wanted to, to show us the realities. Uh, and uh, I think I speak for just about everybody in that group when I say that although we were reassured, and it is still reassuring to find that there are wonderful people in the state of Israel who want peace uh, and understand the realities and understand the need for a two-state solution. What we remembered uh, was the much more extreme views we heard from many young Israelis uh, who appeared to us, frankly, to be living on another planet, but unfortunately were living on ours, but seemed to feel that frontiers meant nothing, human rights meant nothing, legalities, nationality, citizenship meant nothing. The only thing that was important was this was a God-given gift uh, to uh, the people of Israel, and they would do with it as they saw fit. And when I say it, it was also rather uh, unreassuringly uh, unclear where the borders of this uh, territory lay uh, and to what extent uh, Israel was essentially on, a, on, an expansionist, um, on an expansionist course. It's very difficult to be proud of the... Uh, UK record in Palestine. I entirely agree with, with Avi on that. And as a diplomat, inevitably you swap the ability to speak your mind in public for the ability to try to influence decision makers in your government in private. Uh, and I have to say that on the whole, that turned out to be a fairly poor swap uh, where Palestine was concerned. Um, I still think it was worthwhile to make sure that the realities were understood uh, and that, if you like, the Palestinian side of the argument got a hearing uh, in serious discussion. Uh, but I can't say that uh, it was entirely a fair exchange. Where we did have one point of satisfaction, I suppose, was that we did work very closely with the embassy in Tel Aviv, the British embassy to Israel, and we were both setting out from the starting point, that a two-state solution was really the only answer for Israelis uh, and for Palestinians. I said the name Balfour didn't come up very much, um, probably this because, because I'd been around enough in the Middle East and the Palestinians are very civilised people and they didn't feel that the realities of the history needed to be rammed down my throat on a regular basis. Um, but there are occasions which are very painful and very memorable when it did come up. I'm thinking of the time when uh, a Palestinian family were thrown out of their home uh, just across the valley in Sheikh Jarrah, where we lived. Uh, they were tossed out of the house in the middle of the night uh, on the basis that 100 years ago or 200 years ago, the home had allegedly uh, belonged to a, a Jewish owner. Uh, the fact that they'd also been tossed out of their home in West Jerusalem and had been rehoused as refugees 
uh, obviously cut no ice with the Israeli legal system. Uh, and strangely enough, the people wandering around with M16s uh, and taking over the house had strong American accents and were only there for a few months and I don't think saw their future as uh, being in the state of Israel, but nonetheless were no doubt proud to do their bit. Uh, the family were thrown out on the street in the middle of the night. Uh, the most senior member uh, was an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair who died 24 hours later, uh, and so the uh, family found themselves not only dispossessed and out in the street, uh, but mourning for their father and grandfather, and the mourning tent which was set up in accordance with tradition for them to receive their neighbours in at least uh, a degree of dignity uh, was torn down on a regular basis by the Israeli police, just to make the point. Uh, and when I went to pay my condolences, which I felt might or might not be welcome, but to a neighbour was obviously the thing I felt I had to do, uh, the widow turned to me and said, this is all your fault, you gave our country to the Jews. And frankly, I found it very difficult to fault her logic. Perhaps the strange thing is that the Balfour Declaration doesn't seem to have done us any good on the Israeli side either. Uh, and we regularly seem to be regarded as, in quotes, the most anti-Semitic country in Europe. Uh, and that sort of question of how do you feel coming from the most anti-Semitic country in Europe is the sort of standard thing lobbed at junior ministers uh, on their first visit. Um, Sipi Livni, who was then foreign minister, did make a speech uh, at uh, the National Day one year uh, in Tel Aviv in which she said that she had one reason to be grateful to the British, uh, and that was that her mother and father had met uh, when they were raiding a British train. Uh, strangely enough, she didn't refer to that as a terrorist attack, but then, of course, one person's terrorist is, as ever, uh, another person's freedom fighter. But there is no doubt that it was partly on the back of a very successful terrorist campaign that the State of Israel was brought into being, and clearly the Palestinians saw that and drew their own conclusions from it, whether or not... Uh, the Israeli government did. I suppose the huge difference uh, with the modern era that I had to deal with is that when Balfour spoke, it really made a difference. Uh, when Blair spoke, uh, it made very little difference at all. Uh, I'm not at all clear that this was uh, Blair's expectation. Uh, he came out full of enthusiasm uh, and convinced that he could achieve and bridled considerably when the advice, both from me and my colleague in Tel Aviv, was that this was extremely difficult territory, uh, and uh, it was very unlikely that he would make progress on the basis of the occasional visit uh, every month. The fact is, of course, that uh, the power now uh, lies with the Americans, uh, hence the phrase which I've always felt as sum things up rather nicely, which is uh, only the Americans can, but the Americans can't, i.e. it's only the Americans who conceivably could bring the sort of pressure to bear on Israel to create uh, a solution, to create a genuine negotiation, but as has been only too clear in recent years, they don't have the political will or indeed maybe the way Congress is behaving, even the political ability the Palestinians were quite 
uh, optimistic at the time that Obama came to power. He said some very positive things. He took a very tough line on settlements. And quite a lot of people came through my office and said, are the Americans really serious? Um, Don't they realize that settlements is an absolutely (coughs) fundamental neuralgic point for the Israelis? And to get them to do something in terms of a settlement freeze would take a huge battle. Um, And I would say, uh, rather circumspectly, that there were plenty of intelligent people in the State Department who realized that, uh, and I assumed that uh, they had been consulted. Uh, Clearly, this hadn't been taken into account, and uh, the ignominious climb down uh, by the then Secretary of State uh, in front of Bibi Netanyahu and the television cameras in Jerusalem uh, left people, I think, feeling... Um, betrayed yet again uh, on the Palestinian uh, side of the argument. The only explanation I've ever been given uh, for this was that uh, at the time of Obama's election, people around him were so convinced that the world had changed, there was a new president, there was a new policy, people would have to listen. Uh, Well, that clearly did not uh, have any impact at all on the Prime Minister of Israel, who felt that people would continue to listen to him. Uh, And that, of course, has has proved to be the case. That doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't be taking our responsibilities, we shouldn't be respecting legality, we shouldn't be trying to give some kind of leadership. But it does make it a great deal more difficult to argue with ministers. Uh, What I was very often asked was, okay, if we do this, And if we get into a huge row with the Americans, what difference will it actually make on the ground? If I come and do this, how will things change? Um, And to be honest, one couldn't say that things would change a great deal. One would say one has to stand up for the rule of law. One has to prevent the the growth of a sort of rogue state that doesn't uh, respect international norms either internally or externally. But you could see that sort of ministers' eyes would glaze over at this point uh, and they'd start thinking about the wider considerations, the relationship with the Americans and so on. I'm not saying we did nothing that was worthwhile during my time. We made some progress on minor issues like the labelling of settlement products. Uh, We kept some of the uh, hope alive in terms of getting students out of Gaza But I vividly remember uh, an academic who's an expert on Jerusalem coming to see me in my office once. And he said, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I gave a sort of 15 minutes of enthusiastic chat about what I'd been doing. And he said, ah, nothing's changed then. (laughs) And of course, he was exactly right. You know, we were running around in the undergrowth trying to fix this, trying to do some minor minor achievement uh, in the case of Blair Uh, One thing that comes to mind is that the office got very excited at one point that they were going to get a a copy of the film Avatar into the West Bank. And indeed, they did get a copy of the film Avatar into the West Bank. And as you can imagine, if you know the film, it's one that went down extremely well with the Palestinians. Um, But one has to say that if that, rather than raising the siege of Gaza, uh, is the objective, one's eye has somewhat slipped from uh, the real ball. And on the real issues, settlements, uh, the siege of Gaza, the impunity with which uh, Palestinian civilians were subject to attack, not just 
by the Israeli armed forces and police, but also by settlers, we got nowhere at all. Uh, in a sense, there were, there were two problems with uh, the appointment of Tony Blair. The first uh, was perhaps more related to him and his, uh, his record in the region. Uh, the second was much more related to the quartet. I mean, the quartet, uh, I used to grandly say, is uh, an example of international unanimity uh, in support of the two-state solution. And that is indeed one interpretation that I think one could reasonably put on it. But in fact, of course, uh, the quartet essentially limited uh, the ability of anybody else uh, in Europe uh, or indeed around the world to step out of the shadow of the United States. Uh, and I think our own policy was pretty relentlessly uh, in that shadow. Uh, we heard an awful lot about how we ministers were in favour of a particular policy, but we shouldn't be in the lead. Uh, and if you're not in the lead, it is very difficult uh, to make progress. Uh, Europe is uh, immensely divided on the issue, of course. That's come up again in recent uh, controversy about uh, discussions supposedly confidential to Europe uh, being available to the Israelis. In my time, the, uh, the European Union's most senior official uh, came to uh, for talks with uh, with the Israelis uh, and was extremely annoyed to see a copy of his brief in front of Sipi Livni uh, on her side of the desk and I'm told pointed out that it was all very well to have this but actually to put it on the table where it could be seen showed scant respect uh, for the visitor I heard of Tony Blair's appointment through a phone call um, which was clearly designed to prevent uh, severe complaints from the Consul General in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, I was told that it had happened, that and no, nobody else thought it was a terribly good idea either, but that he had gone to the Americans and asked for this and been given it, uh, and it was going to happen. Uh, I couldn't see how it was going to work, because the role of the envoy is to try to improve... Uh, Palestinian infrastructure, governance and the economy. And that, if it's to be achieved at all, can only be done by a great deal of patient, detailed work, not by somebody jetting in for a couple of days a month. And I've discovered since, actually, in preparing for this talk, that I wasn't the only person who was having these thoughts, because James Wolfenson, who was the previous quartet envoy, who left after 11 months very disillusioned with the job, um, gave an interview to Haaretz uh, shortly after the appointment when he said, I was stupid for not reading the small print, unquote. Quote, the basic problem was that I didn't have the authority. The quartet had the authority, and within the quartet it was the Americans who had the authority. I would doubt that in the eyes of Elliot Abrams and the State Department I was ever anything but a nuisance, unquote. Um, Wolfenson, to his credit, uh, drew these conclusions and, as I say, decided that the job was not something he could pursue. But he went on to say that my worry for Tony Blair is that if you read the mandate he has, it's exactly the same as mine. It talks about helping both sides, helping the Palestinians, but there's nothing there about negotiating peace. And, of course, that is hardly surprising. Uh, as Avi has said, uh, this is such... Uh, an issue of priority for the United States that nobody, however close a friend, 
uh, is going to be allowed, I think, to stray onto that territory. We gave quite a lot of thought to how the mission might conceivably be structured. Um, Nobody asked us to, but I suppose there was an element of self-preservation in our minds, since obviously it would redound on us one way or another uh, as the British representatives there. Um, And the only answer we could come up with that there needed to be a really senior American deputy to Blair who would be there uh, 24-7 and would be able to follow up at a really senior level with the Israelis uh, and others. Uh, I think the quote from Wolfenson speaks for itself. Uh, The last thing Washington wanted, they already had an ambassador and a consul general and a senior general as the security coordinator. The last thing they wanted was a fourth really senior American um, on the same piece of of turf. As I say, uh, Blair came with with boundless self-belief. He was not very impressed by our arguments uh, about the difficulties and the obstacles to be overcome and what would need to be done to make uh, a real difference, although he did, after his familiarization visit, indicate that, yes, he had... Uh, taken on board at least some of the things he was, he was told by the many people uh, we took him to see. I'm not convinced that the office was run particularly uh, professionally. I don't mean that in a, in a sort of managerial sense, but there seemed to be a disconnect between the envoy and those who were supposed to be uh, following up uh, his work. And there was a continual uh, view Uh, I think, in his team, that they didn't have visibility of a great deal uh, that Mr. Blair was actually doing. And in particular, they had very little visibility of his contacts and discussions with the Israeli side of the argument. Uh, The large delegations were there on the Palestinian side, and it tended to be much more one-to-one conversations with the Israelis. And I'm afraid what followed was depressingly predictable, periodic visits that became ever more periodic, uh, promises being made uh, which were then not delivered on. He would return a month later to be told that everything had proved to be too difficult, there were legal problems, and obviously uh, there are many uh, on the Israeli side of the argument who've become very experienced and proficient indeed at fobbing off uh, foreign pressure and taking the whole uh, discussion down into process uh, and essentially uh, into the weeds. So um, I was asked by somebody to sum up uh, the uh, experience uh, of uh, Tony Blair as uh, Quartet Envoy, uh, and uh, I'm afraid my conclusion was that it was a very expensive and ultimately achievement-free exercise. Now, in saying that, I mean, I have to qualify it by saying what could people have said about what I managed to achieve uh, in four years in Palestine? What did the international community uh, manage to achieve? There is a very sad history of support, generous economic support, donor support to Palestinian institutions to try to kickstart the Palestinian economy. Uh, And these are simply made completely worthless by Israeli security actions, which seem specifically designed to undermine it. Uh, You build a hospital in Gaza, the hospital in Gaza gets bombed. You have uh, a a UN uh, relief and works agency in Gaza, and it gets hit by 
uh, phosphorus shells uh, during one of the uh, one of the Israeli attacks. So uh, I couldn't say that uh, this was some unique uh, piece of incompetence, um, but it certainly wasn't a success. Why did he think that? Uh, he might have got further, which I, I think he probably did. Uh, I think it was the Northern Ireland experience, and I have heard from people I do respect uh, who uh, worked closely on Northern Ireland that in that situation he was absolutely the master of a number of very specific circumstances when months of effort had gone into moving one side or the other almost as far as they needed to go. He was exactly the man, had exactly the touch to bring them just that tiny bit further than they felt comfortable with and perhaps to make another step forward in the process possible. But, of course, this was taking place against the background of a huge amount of support and pressure, full-scale full uh, enthusiasm from the United States... Uh, all the uh, facilities and abilities of the British state um, to put pressure, to uh, mount the argument, to follow every conceivable avenue in order to sort of corral the parties uh, onto the territory where they, wished, uh, where they wished them to be. I wanted to say a few words about the future, and this will be... Um, my final remarks. Uh, I wish I could be more optimistic, um, but I honestly can't see where this is leading except to greater damage both to Palestinians and Israelis. And I've had this conversation with Israelis, and I've said, look, you know, if it's not going to be a secular state, which might work, but you wouldn't want that, uh, if it's not going to be two states, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about an apartheid state? Are we talking about the wholesale expulsion of millions of people? Uh, and at that point, uh, there would be some consternation, and people would say, well, no, you're right, of course, no, none of this will work, but it's not our fault. Uh, it's because uh, the Palestinians are not ready to deal uh, the fact is there's less and less contact between the two sides. Uh, I'm not saying that the uh, situation or relations between Palestinians and Israelis were anything like equal at the time when I first visited Palestine, but at least people were working, uh, Palestinians were working in Israel. Uh, the two sides saw each other as human beings. Um, now, judging by uh, the Israeli Prime Minister's recent comments about wild beasts... Um, that's not necessarily the case. And, of course, these kind of extremist views uh, are going to be enthusiastically reciprocated by those who take an equally extreme position uh, on the other side of the argument. And I think most dangerously, the fact that Israeli rhetoric conflates Israel with the Jewish people uh, and the extent to which that gives a sort of uh, religious tone to the whole argument, that again is something which is deeply damaging to everyone. So I do feel uh, that more needs to be done. Uh, I don't think it'll be the United States. I don't think it'll be uh, the European Union as European Union. I think perhaps the last hope uh, is that there can be some sort of coalition of the willing to try to stake out some new territory because if this does all go wrong, it's all very well to say, as the Americans often do, that you can't want peace more, more than the parties. 
But I do seriously believe that this is not just going to be a disastrous future uh, for Israelis and Palestinians if it ends uh, in a huge increase in violence and dispossession of one side or the other, but a global problem that we will all have to pick up the pieces from. Thank you very much.